Hey, thank you, Patrick, for sharing that. Uh, if you don't know, India is less than 3% evangelical. And so out of that 1.3 billion, there are not many believers there, and they need prayers. And the work, the prayers that we do and the finances we send, God multiplies that exponentially as it goes to India. Well, we are four weeks in to a series titled Learning to Pray. And in this series, we're, we're looking at Paul's prayers in his letters. Um, in fact, uh, I told you a couple weeks ago that it's kind of been modeled after this prayer, praying, or this book, Praying with Paul. And so if you want a book on prayer, this is an amazing book. It's down here. Feel free to get that after the sermon. We're giving away one every week throughout this series. Um, but the idea is that Scripture would be the very thing that shapes and forms our prayers. And one thing that we have noticed as we've looked at Paul's prayers is that Paul prays for deep realities, not pleasant results. I mean, he's not praying for good food and a good day and a good time. His prayers are not about sunshine, flowers, and laughter. He prays for things much much deeper than that. And so today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So I encourage you to go ahead, go ahead, have your Bibles to Ephesians 1. Now this is an incredible book in which Paul will look at the gospel in which God has saved us. He will look at what the Christian life is. I encourage you, read Ephesians, meditate on it over and over and over again. It is an amazing book that God has given us. But Paul he begins this letter by, by simply praising God for the salvation that he's given us in Jesus Christ. And three times he states the goal of our salvation and the goal of everything that God does. And he says in verse 6, verse 12, and 14, to the praise of God's glory. And specifically in verse 6 he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he wants you to know that you have been saved, I have been saved for the praise of God to his glorious grace. Our lives are to point to his grace at all times. And just think, just think how countercultural that this is. We live in a culture that wants to deny and reject God at every level of society. We live in a world where science, atheism, and individualism will say that God is foolish and has no place in the public square or in the private sphere. We live in a world that exalts the self and denies God. But if you're a Christian, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you know that the world is wrong, and it's not foolish to believe in God, but it's wise to believe in God, and that the world is foolish. And the reason we know that is because we've seen the beauty and the goodness and the glory and the majesty of God. We've tasted his sweetness, and we know that we have been saved so Every word, every action, every relationship that we have would now testify to the praise of God's glorious grace. And so what I want us to see this morning is that prayer is essential if we're to live to the praise of God's glory. If we're to live in the purpose in which God does everything that he does and our lives will be aligned with him, prayer is essential in order for us to do that. And so the main point this morning is that we ought to pray for the knowledge of God so that we would live a godly life with invincible joy. And so I, I want to define a couple of those terms. Um, so when I say godly life, what I mean is that our lives testify to the praise of God's glorious grace. If God's purpose in all that he does is to the praise 
of his glorious grace, then to live a godly life would be aligned with God, and we would want the advancement of his glory to the praise of his grace. And so when I use the word invincible joy, what I mean is that the Christian life is one of boldness, joy, and absolute assurance in all the satisfaction of Jesus. So because of God's grace that is given to us, and the security, and the assurance, and the hope we have in that grace, we have invincible joy as we go into this world. So that's what I want us to see as we come into um, our passage this morning. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We stand when we read God's word here as a reminder to us that God's word is inspired and it's given to us for the purpose of equipping us so that we would live to the praise of God's glory with invincible joy. And so we're going to read Paul's prayer. and It starts in verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Join me as I pray. Father, Father, give us a knowledge of you today. God, help us to know you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just work right now just through your word, your word that you have given us, and that your spirit would just awaken our hearts to the beauty and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has given us by your grace. God, help us to taste and to see the goodness of your son. May we see, may we understand, may we know the grace of the gospel. And may we see that because we have believed in you, we experience grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in our lives for all of eternity. God, help us to right now be overwhelmed with your grace that you give us. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. We're going to primarily focus on verses 15 uh, through uh, 20. Uh, so that's going to be the main focus of this sermon. And, and the first thing we see is that Paul is constant in prayer. I just want to just point that out from the very beginning. Paul is constant in prayer. Verses 3 through 14, Paul praises God for saving us by the grace of Jesus Christ. The evidence that the church has been saved is what we read in verse 15. They have faith in Jesus. They love the saints. Those are two undeniable marks of a Christian. If you love Jesus and you love those who love Jesus. So I, I would ask you then this morning, do you love Jesus, and do you love those who love Jesus? Those are undeniable marks of a Christian. And so Paul, as, he, as he's talked about the grace that has saved us, what does Paul do now? He prays. He bursts out into praise, and he says, I want more grace. 
Paul sa- God saves us by grace. Paul responds to this grace and says, I just want more grace. That's what prayer does. Prayer says, I need your grace. And so here we go. Paul says, he says in verse 16, because they've been saved by grace, because they love Jesus, and because they love the saints, or be- yeah, because they love the saints, he then says in verse 16 that he constantly prays for, prays for them. Now, Chris Gorman, he preached last week on 2 Thessalonians, and he pointed out that Paul regularly speaks throughout his letters, I pray for you without ceasing, I pray for you without ceasing, I pray for you without ceasing. And we get the idea that Paul prays without ceasing, right? That's, that's what he wants us to know. Prayer is a constant action of Paul. And so this praying without ceasing, uh, Chris helped us to, to understand it. Think of a, a praying life. When Paul wakes up, he prays. When Paul travels, he prays. When Paul eats, he prays. When he's with his friends, he prays. At all times, Paul is praying. So that's one thing that it means to be praying at all times, is to be constant in prayer, is to literally break out in spontaneous prayer throughout your day for the very grace of God. That's one. But I would say another one is that you must prioritize time for prayer. And if you're going to live a life of prayer, that will only come when you begin prioritizing prayer. Spontaneity will come from a bedrock of prioritizing prayer. So I encourage you to be in prayer. Praying a prayerful life is not just for elders and for deacons, to leaders within the church. If you are saved, God has called you to a praying life. And that will begin by prioritizing prayer, and that prioritizing of prayer will then spring into spontaneous prayers throughout your life at all times. And so that's, that's where Paul starts. And so now, starting in verse 17, Paul's going to say, so this is what I pray for you about, which is really good. I'm glad Paul doesn't just say, I pray for you all the time, and then he just moves on. But now he tells us, what does he pray? And so when we read Paul's prayers, we know what we should pray for ourselves, for our families, and for the church. So starting in verse 17, he says, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul prays that we'd have a deeper knowledge of God. That's what he prayed. I want you to know God deeper, more deeply. Now, the church already knows God. This isn't unbelievers he's writing to. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that when we come to faith, it's only because God has shined the light of knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So all of Jesus, he shined into our hearts that we would know him. So every Christian comes to faith because they know Jesus. So the church knows God because the only way that we come to faith is because God has shined his knowledge and all of the glory of Jesus Christ into the heart of a believer. That's the difference between believer and unbeliever. The believer sees and knows and tastes the very beauty of Jesus Christ because God has revealed it to him in a very special way into his heart. And so why is it then that Paul says, I need you to have more knowledge? What's he praying for? What's the point if we already know God? And I think a a good way to think of that is to think about marriage. When you get married, you, you love your spouse. And that love is rooted in a knowledge 
of your spouse. Like you don't just love your spouse without knowing anything about them. There's things, there's truths, there's facts about your spouse that you know. You know their dreams and their hobbies. You know their likes and their dislikes. Before getting married, you spend countless hours into the wee, wee hours of the morning. Like, like, well, we talked on the phone. You probably text now, right? But you spend like all the time just talking. And when you get married, do you stop learning your spouse? Well, you do if you don't have a good marriage. You do if you don't have a good marriage. So you're called to continually learn your spouse. And I remember my grandparents, they had been married for over 50 years. And my grandpa would look at my grandma, or my grandma would look at my grandpa. There was like a sparkle in their eyes that they delighted in one another, that they knew each other as such a deep, personal intimate knowledge that there was something that was happening even in that gaze that they had that made you envious of that love. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was a deep, personal, intimate knowledge that I can't have on year one to 20 of my marriage. It comes after 50 years of deeply knowing and growing in that love for the spouse. That's what Paul's praying for. He's like, I want you to know God more deeply. I want you to have this personal, intimate, foundation knowledge of God that shapes everything that you do. So yes, you know God now. Praise God. Now know him more and more and more and more for the next 50, 60, 70 years of your life that even as you just walk throughout your day, there's a sparkle and a twinkle in your eye because there's just the love that you have for God. It shines forth in everything that you do. So that's, that's what Paul is praying So you might say, what is that knowledge? What does that look like? So Paul gives us three specific areas that he's saying, this is what I want you to know about God. So that's what we're going to look at. Number one, you have been saved for an indestructible hope. Look at verse 18. He says, Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul wants you to know the assurance and the goal of your salvation. So again, going back to verses 3 to 14, the very beginning uh, verses of Ephesians, Paul praises God for our salvation. And just look at those verses. Verse 3, Paul says, we have been given every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're a believer, you do not lack one spiritual blessing. You have everything in Christ. You know, you have Everything in Christ. Verse 4, we read, God chose you before the foundation of the world. There's this doctrine called election, and what it means is God's love for you stretches into past eternity. Before he ever created the world, he knew you, and he loved you, and he desired that you'd be saved for him, and that you would live a holy life. A holy life means you would be devoted to him, that you would live to the praise of his glorious grace. And then we read in verses 5 and 7 that God has adopted us as his children. He's redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, and he's forgiven us of all of our sins. This is is what God has done for you all through the gracious gift of his son, Jesus Christ. It's all by grace. You didn't merit it. You didn't earn God's favor. Our salvation is simply grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's verses 3 through 14. It's just grace. All over. And then look at verses 13 and 14. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
So if you believe in Jesus, experienced his love, his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within you, sealing you. And Ephesians 4, 30 says, for the day of redemption. So the purpose of your salvation is not just for this moment, but that the Spirit would seal you so when Christ returns, you will be with him for all future eternity. So what, what Paul wants you to know is that God's grace began for you in past eternity, and it will stretch towards you for all future eternity because that's the grace that saves you. You're completely secure and sealed by all the grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ, which means you're your salvation in Christ is eternal. It's unbreakable. Do you see why our hope is indestructible? There's nothing to do with your work and your merit. It has everything to do with God's grace. God's love for you in Christ never fails, and it will never, ever, 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 ever come to an end. Just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Which is why when we come to Ephesians, or Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, this is what Paul says. He says, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. So he's, he's listed everything, and then just to make sure, in case he missed something, he says, or anything else will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His grace holds you completely and absolutely secure. So every morning that you wake up, know that God's love is for you in Christ Jesus. So life changes, relationships change, finances change, situations change, our health changes, but God's love for you never changes. Isn't that good news? It never changes whether you walk through the valley of darkness or you're dancing on the mountaintops. Whatever season you are in, God's grace is perfect and you are secure in his grace. That's the hope of every Christian. So Paul says, know that. Know that grace. Pray that you would know the indestructible hope that you have because of the grace in Jesus Christ. So that's number one. Know that hope. Pray it every day. I want to know that hope that God has given me. Number two, you've been saved for a glorious inheritance. Look at verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, there are two ways to understand this verse. Both are true. Both are valid. I don't think we necessarily need to choose one. We can hold them both. So I'll give you both of them. You can choose one you like the best, but... They're both true. Number one, Paul's saying God is your inheritance. He wants you to know the riches of your inheritance, the riches of the saints' inheritance, which ultimately would be God. Verse 14, we read the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. In Peter's first letter, we're told that we have an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, unfading. In Colossians 1, we read that we've been qualified for the inheritance that God has given us. We are promised for all of eternity that we will dwell with God, we will serve God, and we will reign with him on his throne. 
that we will forever experience the beauty and the glory and the riches of God because he is our inheritance. Sin is what separates us from him. We see that in Genesis 3. The redemption plan culminates with the sending of Jesus Christ, that he would come as the God-man, fully God, fully man, die on a cross, rise three days later, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan. So if you believe in him, you would have everlasting life, and that life would be with God in his presence, forever enjoying him, never, ever being separated again. So the inheritance of the Christian is not that we would become God or that we would own our own worlds or, or anything like that. And I want you to think about this. That wouldn't be sweet if that's what it was. Now think about why this is. Our God is infinitely glorious and beautiful. If we could become God, he would not be infinite, neither would he be supremely glorious because you cannot have two infinite beings that exist. So rather, God who is infinitely glorious saves us, transforms us, brings us into his presence that he would share his glory and his grace with us for all of eternity that we would enjoy him at maximum joy at all times. That's the inheritance that we have. That's number one. So that, that, that could be what Paul is saying here, and I think there's a lot of really good arguments for why that is what it is, but it could also be this. We, as the saints, are God's inheritance. Look at verse 18. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So the ESV, the literal translation, makes it more sound as if the very inheritance that Paul is talking about is that you and I, as the saints, the church, is the inheritance of God. Which if you think about that, that's pretty amazing too. God is the Alpha and Omega. He owns all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. The cosmos belongs to him. He knows every star in the sky by name. That's weird. I get confused with my own children at times. <laughs> and he just looks at the stars. He's like, well, that's that one, and that's that one. He knows them. And yet, if we were to take all the riches of creation, all the beauty, all the gold, all the diamonds, all the silver, all the treasures of all creation, and we were to pile them and put them on a giant scale, it wouldn't even move it the slightest amount compared to the incomparable great riches of God that he has. And yet, this God, who knows all things, owns all things, sustains all things, sends his son Jesus into creation as a child that he would be made like you and me so that by his death and resurrection, if we believe in him, we'd be saved, forgiven, redeemed, adopted into his family so that God would look at us covered in the righteousness of Jesus in the very same way he looks at his son, Jesus. And we would sit with Jesus on his throne for all of eternity and God delighting in us at all times. This is why Ephesians 2.7 will say this. This is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul's talking about our salvation and he says, that we've been saved by grace so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
So, so God is promising that when you got saved, grace didn't stop at, stop at that moment. But it continues forever, and God delights in lavishing his grace upon you in Jesus Christ for all of eternity because he delights in you, because he loves you, because you are his inheritance. So what Paul wants us to see is that God saved you by grace, and his grace is like a never-ending river washing over us. The Christian life, past, present, and future, is grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So know this, then. God delights in lavishing grace upon you. Just as a father loves to give good gifts to his children, so God, with infinite pleasure, delights in giving all the good gifts to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, that we'd know the pleasure of our inheritance in God and that we'd know the pleasure of God's inheritance in us. So Paul says, pray for that. I need you to know that knowledge. I need you to know the riches of, of his inheritance. I need, to, I need you to know the riches of our inheritance. Whichever way it is, you need to know the inheritance that is yours, that is God's, that comes to us because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And to summarize these first two points, what we see is God saves us by grace, and God forever delights in satisfying us with grace. That's what these two points say. I'll save you by grace. I'll satisfy you forever with grace. The grace will never, ever stop. Now, this last point shows us how we live out these truths in our everyday lives. We see that everything that the Christian has in God is because of his grace. So now we see how do we live to the praise of his glorious grace? How is it that we actually do this? So the last point is you have been saved to forever experience the infinite power of God. I want you to think about this. Look at verses 19 to 20. This is what he says. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So he's talking to the church. The measurable greatness of power toward the church. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated, a, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul wants us to know the power of God that's at work in you right now. So if you're a believer, because of the work of Jesus, his power is in you. What power is in you? Well, first, Paul uses three different words to speak of power. He, just, he wants us to be overwhelmed with this power. So the word greatness is where we get the word megos. The word power is where we get the word dynamite. And the word might is might. There you go. That one's easy. So Paul uses these terms. He's like, I want you to know the power, this power, this amazing power, the infinite power of God. He wants us to be overwhelmed with this power that he's talking about. And we should be because notice what this power does. Verse 20, it's the very power that raised Jesus from the dead so he would now reign in the heavens. So the very power that raises Christ, elevates him so he sits in the heavens, rules over the entire universe. Paul now says, that's the power in you. And interestingly, if we were to go to Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, we read about this power. And we read about how it comes to us in our salvation. So look at chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we're dead, spiritually dead, 
We have no desire to please God, no desire to love God. We are not satisfied in God at all. We want nothing to do with God. Verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The very same thing that happens to Jesus happens to what? Us, Robert knows. It happens to us. The very power that raises Jesus, seats him in the heavenly places, is the very power that God uses in us to raise us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that we would rule with him for all of eternity in the heavenly places. So just as Christ has been raised and seated in the heavenly places, so now the very power of God is at work in us, empowering and fueling everything that you do. Think about just how much we need to pray that we would know this power. Just think about that. And just... Just think about how applicable this is to your life. So starting in Ephesians 4 to Ephesians 6, Paul's going to walk through the Christian life. And he's just going to give a whole lot of commands and a whole lot of description. This is what the Christian life looks like. So let's, let's take a look. Ephesians 4, 2. Paul says, you're to walk in humility and you're to bear with one another in love. Well, that's easy, right? How are you going to do this? By the power of God at work in you. Ephesians 4, 26 to 31, we're told, do not sin in your anger. Do not, uh, we're told to work hard. We're told to speak honest, to speak in a way that honors God. And we're told not to be bitter or not to be slanderous. Well, that's easy not to sin in my anger and to do all those things, right? How are you going to do that? By the power of God at work in you. Ephesians 4.32, you're to forgive as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.2, we're to walk in the very love of Christ. So our lives are to look like Christ at all times. How are you going to do that? By the power of God at work in you. Ephesians 5.22, wives, you are to submit to your husbands in everything. You're to submit to them willingly, joyfully. How do you do that? By the power of God at work in you. Husbands, you're told in 525, you're to love your wife and lay down your life for her and to please her and honor her. And these are not conditional. Well, I'll do it when he does this and I'll do it when he does this. Even when the other one's not meeting the very things that God calls us to do, we are striving to live the way God has called us. Why? Because God's power is at work in you. Ephesians 6.1 says, children, you're to obey your parents in everything. That's that's easy, right? Children, is that a good news? Hey, my kids, where you at? You got that? Everything. Scripture. How do you do that? Parents, you need to teach your kids. You're only going to obey kids by the power of God at work in you. Ephesians 6, 11, we are told to put on the full armor of God and stand against the spiritual attacks of Satan himself. Now think about how crazy that is. Why are we in this mess? Because Adam and Eve were in a garden, and the master deceiver came and tempted, and they fell into it. And when we look at the Old Testament, like the kings and the nations, what do we see? Fall into temptation over and over and over and over and over and over again. And now Paul has the audacity to say, you need to stand firm in the armor of God at all times against the schemes of the devil. 
he will unleash his full force against you, how are you going to stand firm by the power of God at work in you? God saves you to live a godly life. God saved you so your life would be the praise of his glorious life, the praise of his glorious grace. The commands of Scripture. So when you read Scripture and you come to a command, those commands are telling you what it looks like to live a life to the praise of his glorious grace. It's like coming back to Ephesians. When you're reading Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, and it's talking about how we bear with one another, how we love one another, how we build one another up, how we work and how we use our words and how we forgive as Christ forgave us and walk as Christ walked and how we husbands love their wives and wives love their husbands and children submit and honor and we all work to the very glory of God, standing firm against the very power of God. We do that by the power of God to the praise of his grace. It has nothing to do with your power. There's nothing to do with any of your strength, of any of your might, of any of your abilities. It has everything to do with the grace of God's power in you, which is why when we obey, our lives testify not to your strength, your power, your abilities, but to the praise of his glorious grace. Isn't that incredible? Like That's what it's all about, to the praise of his grace. Why? Because you're saved by grace, sustained by grace, and the grace never stops. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Living a life of godliness is not a wish or a far-fetched dream. Like, like Paul's just saying, I hope you can do this. Good luck. Your wife's really hard. Your husband's pretty tough. Children, I know your parents. Like he's not saying, like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, most of us can do this, but you, you do have a tough situation. Like God probably didn't take that in consideration. Living a life of godliness is not an impossibility because God's power is at work in you so you can obey all the commands of Scripture. So how do we, how do we live this way? We must pray. Prayer is dependence upon God's grace. You see, the reason we, we don't pray, and get this, the reason we don't pray is because we do. We think we're so self-sufficient. We have such a high view of ourself. Don't ever forget, it's this high view, this self-exaltation that plunged humanity into the depths of sin in the first place. May we loathe the self-exaltation and may we love the everlasting grace of God. So we have to pray. So let me just, I want to try to work this out in a really practical way. So when you're reading and you you come across a command of scripture, like, like, how do you obey that? So let's take, we'll take a couple. Ephesians 4.32, these are easy. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved you. So those are just really two easy commands, right? Just love, just perfectly like Christ love, and forgive perfectly as, as Christ forgives. I can imagine, and I know, there are many times we have said things like, I, I can't do that. I can't love that person. I can't forgive. You did too much. There's no way I can forgive you. You've crossed this threshold of forgiveness. So when you say that, when you say you cannot obey the commands of Scripture, there's three things you're saying. Number one, I don't believe that God's grace has fully saved me so that I can obey him. You're saying I don't believe that God's, the grace of God's riches are so glorious and satisfying that I want to obey him. 
and you're saying, I don't believe the grace of God's strength is powerful enough to actually help me do this. Those three things are all true at that moment, but that you're believing. So what do you do? Well, Paul prays, you need to know God. You need to know God. So, so you would pray, pray that you would know the indestructible hope of your salvation. Pray for a greater knowledge of the grace that saved you. Pray that you would know that you were redeemed, adopted, forgiven, and sealed by the Spirit, that the grace of God is what sustains your life and has given you life right now. The entire reason you live and love Christ is by his grace. And that grace will never cease. Number two, pray that you would know the infinite riches of your inheritance. God, pray that you would know that God treasures you and loves you now and will forever give you the grace needed to follow him. Pray that you would know that grace flows to you and every day because you were saved. So his the river of grace that flows out of God because you are saved in Christ will never cease to flow from to you for all of eternity. That's our, that's our riches and our inheritance. We'll forever experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Never will it stop. It's always coming. Always all satisfying. Always perfect. And pray that you would know the infinite power of God that's at work in you. God's not calling you to muster up strength to love and to forgive others. The Christian life is not a ladder that you're trying to climb so you can do good works and earn your way to God. You, by God's grace, you, you have been saved and God dwells in you right now. The power of God that created the world, that sustains the world, that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that gave you spiritual life and is the power that will strengthen you to obey the very command that God has given you. So pray that you would know his power. Pray for the grace of his power to strengthen you to love, to forgive, and to obey all that God has called you. And then you go forth and you love and you forgive, knowing that the very truths of Scripture, the Spirit is now going to be applying by his grace in your life. That's how you pray when you come to Scripture. Pray that you would know the grace of your salvation the grace of the riches that will forever satisfy you and the grace of his power that will strengthen you to obey everything he's called you to do. You see, the Christian life is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is why I said our joy is invincible. God's grace is never ending, so there's never a situation that's going to come into your life that will separate you from the love of Christ. But forever his grace will strengthen you to sustain you, so no matter what trial, what situation you're in, you're able to endure because of his grace. And prayer is the means in which we know God, in which we will know and experience the work of God's grace in your life. This happens by prayer. It doesn't come apart from prayer. This is what we do. So prayer is the exercising of our faith when we come to scripture that the truths of scripture would be applied to our lives. So when we come to scripture, we need to pray that we would understand scripture, that we would know scripture, and for the very power of God's grace to help us to live out the truths of scripture. We pray for a knowledge of God. Because when we do, we will pray, we will live a godly life, and our joy will be invincible. Because we have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in the Christian life. That's Paul's prayer for us today. That's the deep realities that Paul invites us into. And that's how I want to encourage you to pray each and every day. Pray that you would know God. 
Pray that your wife would know God. Pray that your children would know God. Pray that your husband would know God. Pray that the church together we would grow in our knowledge of God. That we have this deep, personal, intimate knowledge of God. That as time progresses, we love God more and more and more. That just as that couple that's been together for over 50 years, you can just see that love within them. That people would see that love within us, not because of anything we have done, but because of grace upon grace upon grace. Let me pray. Father, oh, Father, how we, we thank you for your grace. And God, we, we so thank you for your grace. A grace that's perfect, a grace that's all satisfying, a grace that empowers us, a grace that strengthens us, a grace that sustains us, a grace that satisfies us. Lord, I pray today that every single one of us would just deepen in our knowledge of you. And as we walk out of here, your grace would be sweeter than what it was when we came in because of the work of your spirit in us. Lord, as we take communion now, as we respond to the grace that we have heard, may we now, in communion, partake of this meal, which is grace, reminding us once again that our salvation, that our hope, past, present, and future, is all because of the gracious work of your son, Jesus. And we are sealed for the day of redemption so that we know we will live in everlasting peace and paradise with you, forever having your grace lavished upon us. God, help us to know you. God, thank you for this prayer. Thank you for your scripture. In your name, Jesus, amen.